Just turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Luke. Be in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. As you're turning there this, this week in preparation, I was reminded of the time we, we went to Mammoth Cave. It was just a few days after Kendall was born. I don't really know what we were thinking. Taking a, I think she was maybe five or six days old. We took her to Mammoth Cave. That probably wasn't the boldest or smartest move. Jacob, don't do that. Um, people look at you like you're crazy. But we took the family to Mammoth Cave. And if you've gone on the Mammoth Cave tour, you might remember this. I think, I guess they do it on every tour. I've only done it once. And but we went down. You get to one of the deepest parts of the cave, and the guide's talking. And and to my knowledge, he didn't warn us or anything. He just boom. The lights were off, and when he turned the lights off, it was like, you didn't move. You know, it was kind of like you couldn't see anything. If, you've ha- if you haven't experienced it, it's a darkness that you, it's hard to understand because, you know, usually there's dark, and you can see a light here or there, but when it goes dark in the bottom of Mammoth Cave, it's dark. You can't see, I was doing this, it's like I can't see my hand, and, and a few moments, I, it seemed like forever but it was probably just a few seconds. Avery was not yet two, and she just let this blood-curdling scream. She, she decided it wasn't any fun anymore, and uh, it was time to be done with it. And so she's screaming, Steph's upset, and I'm going, what in the world's happening? And they turn the lights on, praise the Lord. Well, when they did that, we all of a sudden had a greater appreciation for light, right? I didn't walk in. I didn't drive there that day thinking, man, I am glad the Lord has blessed us with sunshine. And I look at these fascinating lights on the walls. I didn't think anything about it. But after that, I did. I was thinking, man, I'm glad there's lights. I'm glad somebody ran electricity down here. I'm glad for the sunshine we came out of the cave. What we learned and what I was thinking about this week is that the wonder and the beauty of light is realized against the despair and the fear of darkness. We, we understand more fully how great light is when we experience true and utter darkness. So when we consider this series, the series on heaven, and we, we think about going through this study, we must not do so as though we're ignorant of the reality of hell. The truth and the reason I tell you that story is this, is that the wonder and the beauty of heaven is realized against the despair and the fear of hell. Just like we have a greater appreciation of light because moments of darkness when we can't see. If you've ever been lost at night, you understand how important light is in the morning when the the morning breaks and you can see again to find your way out from where you've been lost. It's important for us to consider darkness, the tragedy, the fear, the despair of hell as we go through this study on heaven. See, the tendency in our day is really just to speak of heaven because it's a, it's a comfortable subject. We all like to consider heaven. It's like I told you last week, I've never met anyone who would say, no, I don't even want to go to heaven. I mean, even those among you who are unbelievers, if I said, hey, would you like to go to heaven? You would say, well, yeah, sure, right? Of course I would. We all want to go to heaven. But the reality is, is that heaven and hell exist. They're both very real. They're both very important. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is tied closely to both. As, as one of the pastors, I can't remember who said this. We were having coffee up in Louisville, and we were talking about the series and just different aspects of heaven. And, and one of the pastors remarked, said, heaven makes the gospel sweet while hell makes the gospel 
necessary. That's very true. The gospel is tied to hell, tied to heaven. I want to just kind of give you a, a few remarks, opening remarks, as we, before we look at the passage, some words of encouragement. We think about talking about hell because I, I didn't tell you last week we were going to talk about hell. I was afraid it would be like me and my family. I mean, my wife's not even here today. It would just be me and the kids. If I had said, hey, next week we're going to talk about hell, no one would have come. So I didn't tell you that last week. So here's a few words of encouragement when we think about it. One, we need to think soberly on eternal things. That we need to think. We need to particularly think about the reality of final judgment and the state of our soul. Too much of contemporary thought and contemporary preaching and contemporary, contemporary teaching in general is focused just on this present life. So that we only think about today and, and we don't think about what is coming. When we do think about that, it's just kind of this assumption that everyone's going to go to heaven. So you go to a funeral, and, and as has been said, you, could, you can almost see it. It's almost as though the, the preacher preaches the person into heaven, even though the person may have lived as a complete and utter uh, rebel and, and pagan, uh, opposed to the Lord. And what we need to see is, and what we need to realize and understand is that heaven is not our default destination. It's not our default it's not as though if we're born and we live and we never hear the gospel that we're just going to, by default, go to heaven. Now, that does not mean that God created us for hell. That's not what that means. What it means is that we are all rebels. We have all turned from Him. And because we have all turned, we have all sinned and rebelled and we all deserve hell. So that is our default. Our default is hell. The good news is that God has provided a means for salvation through Jesus. That's the good news that we must hear today when we think about hell. The second thing I would say to you is this, is that to preach and teach and speak of hell is not always a scare tactic. Now, I think that word always is important there. It's not always a scare tactic. Can it be used as such? Absolutely. I remember as a teenager, I experienced that. I experienced moments where hell was used more as a scare tactic to scare someone into faith than it was just presenting the reality of what stands before us. So can it be used as, as a scare tactic? Sure. But is it always a scare tactic? Absolutely not. It's reality. It's truth. To speak of the realities of hell is no more a scare tactic than it is by the, the warning of, of a doctor talking about the impending health risk and how that could end up if you don't change your habits. If, if I look at my doctor and he says, hey, listen, if you don't change your habits, your eating habits, or if you don't change these habits, or you continue on the path that you're going, then, then the end is not going to be good for you. If I look, well, doc, you're just trying to scare me. You're being hateful now. I just can't even believe you say that. Well, No. All of us in here would recognize that the doctor is doing his job, speaking truth, speaking the reality that awaits if I do not change my lifestyle. The third thing I would say before we get into our text is this, is that hell is an unpopular topic to discuss, to preach upon, because of the emphasis on God being loving at the expense of God being holy. Right? We talked about that. We won't stay there long. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. If you want more consideration on that, what does it mean? What does it look like? Why is it that God would send people to hell? How can he do that? Why must he do that? We answered that question a few weeks ago. I think it was two weeks ago 
when we looked at Matthew 13, 47 to 52. So if you have a question this morning about that, that's your question, how could a loving God send someone to hell? Then go back two weeks in our sermon archives and listen to the sermon, and then let me know if you have any questions. We covered the question then. We don't need to cover it today. Let's look at Luke 16 together. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. This is a, a parable of our Lord, as you'll see, it's indicated when he says there was a rich man to begin. That's a pretty common structure used in Luke to introduce parables and, and Jesus' teaching. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am, ang- I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner are bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And so he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. As we said, this is a a parable. This is a a story told by the Lord to, to make a point, to illustrate truths for us. And being a parable, we must be wise and careful not to force details into it or upon it or from it that build these deep doctrinal truths. But we must also understand how to interpret it and how to look at it and see what are the truths and the principles that we see from the parable that correspond to reality, that correspond to the biblical truths of Scripture that Jesus will be pointing out here. Now, Lazarus here, just as a side note, Lazarus is not the same Lazarus as John 11, the the man that Jesus rose from the grave. It's a different Lazarus. Lazarus was a fairly common name in in Jesus' day, and so these are two different individuals. Let's just walk through the parable for a moment. Let's look at, I I want you to see, it's kind of a 2-1-2-1 type flow here that you see. The first thing is we see two different lives. Two different lives. In, in verse 19, we, we see the, the, the comparison of the rich man compared to verse 20, the poor man. In, in verse 19, we, we find out that the rich man lives in great extravagance. It says he is 
He wears purple and fine linen. He feasts sumptuously every day. This is not something where it's like, okay, this is a, a Sunday splurge day. This is every day. His habit was to, to wear fancy, nice clothes, trying to impress others. He eats sumptuously more than he could ever need. Is always at his table, and he's just extravagantly living out his life. Essentially, what we'll find out is that he missed the source of true blessing. The rich man found blessing in his riches. That was his, his blessing, riches, extravagance, with which he would see his great reward. How many would be here today? How many would say the same, that, that the source of true blessing, the way I know I'm blessed is because of the great riches I have, because of the, the comfort I have, because of all the extravagance I can have. I've got this and that, and that's my great reward. He had failed to hear the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24 says, Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. The man who boasted of his riches, who lived extravagantly, who wore the finest linens to be seen by those around him, had missed the fact that the true blessing, the true boast, is not in what we have, but it's in who we know. In comparison, the poor man was destitute. He was helpless. He laid at the gate of the rich man. He was covered with sores, it says. In verse 21, he, he just desired to be fed. He was, he was hungry, and, and he wanted just what fell from the rich man's table. He, he was just hoping for, for crumbs and scratch, scraps that might might fall off, that he could acquire those and have something to eat. It says, moreover, to make it worse, to really help us understand the situation this man was in, moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. He lay there hungry. He lay there helpless. He lay there in despair. While animals came and just licked his wounds and his sores. Two very different lives. But then we find out there is one common end. One common end. In verse 22, death comes upon both of them. They both died, right? The poor man died. And what was he? He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Death is the great equalizer of man. You, you've probably heard it said before that we have a 100% mortality rate. We will all die regardless of our worldly possessions, regardless of our worldly position. We will all die. And you may be here today, you may be as though like you're the rich man and you're living as though death will not come upon you. You would live as though that it does not await, it's not around the corner. But you would do well this morning to consider the outcome of your death. Psalm 90 verse 12, the psalmist prays, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Oh God, that we would all learn to number our days. That He would give us that blessing, that we would gain an understanding of what awaits. That we would gain an understanding of the brevity of life. That we would gain an understanding of what awaits when we die. That we would gain a heart of wisdom. So two different lives who meet one common end. But then we see two different eternal destinations in verses 22 to 23. 
two different eternal destinations. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. This is that kind of symbolic of, of blessing, of, of divine favor. You think back of Old Testament saints of Elijah carried away by the Lord. He was carried to Abraham's side. He went to heaven, essentially. He went to heaven. He came into God's presence with the saints of old. The deep despair, the, the suffering of this life was met in verse 25 with what? With comfort. With comfort. He is comforted here. The despair and, and the suffering of this life, he is now comforted here, it says in verse 25. However, the rich man, his death came to a different end. It says the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades was in torment. He died, he was buried, he then came to a place of torment. It describes a terrible situation in which the rich man finds himself in hell. And part of this torment was actually being able to see those in heaven. In this moment that he was able to see the people in heaven, that was part of the torment that he knew what had eluded him. He knew what he did not have. Same thing that Jesus taught in Luke 13, 28. Jesus said, describing hell, he said, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself are cast out. This awareness, being able to see the recognition that you are not where you would long to be. You are not in heaven, but you are in great torment. Described in verse 24 as being in great flames. Look at how he describes that in verse 24. He says, have mercy on me. He's crying for mercy. What is his plea? Would you just send Lazarus to just dip the tip or the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue? Consider the agony there that that conveys. The anguish, the torment that he just longs for a touch of a wet finger on his tongue to give relief. Oh, the agony. He longs for mercy in verse 24 and verse 25. He says that he was in anguish, this perpetual state continually in anguish in verse 25. And his condition was inescapable. It was inescapable. He could not remove himself from it in verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And that those who would want to leave where you are could not. His position was fixed. This doesn't, again, I would just point out, this is a parable. This doesn't mean that there is a, necessarily a literal chasm between heaven and hell. But what it means is wherever you are, you cannot leave. Those in heaven certainly wouldn't want to. But those in hell cannot. We find one final request, verse 27 to 31. His position is settled. He's in anguish. He's in torment. There's no way around it, no way out of it. And his one final request, don't let my brothers end up here. Don't let them end up here. Have you ever gone through something or experienced something so bad that you say, I wouldn't wish this on my greatest enemy? I, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. 
the torment, the anguish that is upon the rich man has him there. Oh, I wouldn't wish this upon anyone. And, and, and my brothers, would you please let them know? Would you please send someone to warn my brothers? Please, just go tell them. What's the answer? They've already been warned. They know. They've been warned. Verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You see, it's just as in our day, the, the man in the parable thought something more than what was already available was what was needed. But what he needed to know is a simple but a very profound truth. God's Word is sufficient. God's Word is sufficient for salvation to make us wise unto salvation. So if you're one that's sitting here today saying, well, if I just had a little more, if I just had this experience or, or whatever it might be, you need to know that you don't need a bigger experience. You don't need this special revelation just geared just for you because God has made himself known. God has made salvation known. The word is sufficient. The word is sufficient. So I think there's three questions. Three questions that we should ask in response to this parable. We walk through it, we look at it. Three questions, I think, kind of resound. The first one is this. What happens when we die? What happens when we die? Verses 19 to 23 give us a, an illustration of the death of two men. What happens? Well, the first thing that we have to say is that the afterlife is real. There truly is both a heaven and a hell. Scripture is clear about this. It doesn't mince words that it's clear there is a heaven and hell and that only those who are saved by God through faith in Jesus Christ have eternal life. Only those who are saved. That's why John wrote in his letter, his first letter, John wrote, he said, this is, this, I, I write these things so that you may believe and that you may know that God has given us eternal life. He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son, does not have life. It's a very clear line in the sand. That's why John also recorded what Jesus said in John 3.16, that God's love drove Him to send His only Son. Why? That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right? It's clear. We could go on and on and on and on. We need to understand that the afterlife is real, that when we die, it's not just over. It's not as just we just cease to exist and there's nothing more. The afterlife is real. That's why we meditated on what we did before the sermon in Hebrews 9.27. A sobering statement that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. What happens when we die? When we die, we stand before the throne of God. We Come to be judged. And that judgment is based on, as we've talked about in the past, it's, it's already settled on what the standard of that judgment is. is Christ. Have you trusted Christ? Have you not trusted Christ? Are you clothed in His righteousness? Or are you standing in your sin? Which one is it? 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. Many of you studied through Thessalonians recently. I'll just remind you of what we hear in this first chapter, talking about the judgment of the Lord. It says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Judgment is certain. Or another description of it from Revelation 20, verse 11. We read, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. On that day, the, the bottom line is, is your name found in the book of life? Is your name written in the book of life? We are made alive through Christ. Through faith in Christ. Hell is our default destination. You have to know that. You have to hear that. It is only by the grace of God through Christ that we are saved by faith in Jesus. That's all. That's the only way we do not end up in hell. All roads that you can travel in this life, every road, every path, will lead to hell. Except for one. Jesus told us in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. It's the only way of life. That's why we must think soberly and clearly and rightly about the end of our lives. We have to ask, what am I trusting in? What am I hoping in? We have to think rightly and soberly about this. I came across a, an interview this week from a couple years ago, 2021 actually, of Bruce Jenner, known as Caitlyn Jenner talking about meeting God. And what he has to say there is interesting, it's important. He says, I, I just hope that on that day, that question's asked, and I'll find out, you know, have you done enough? Have you done enough? Friends, it's not about how much you've done. Because there is none of us here None of us on this planet who could ever, ever do enough. The only one who has done enough and can do enough is Jesus Christ. He has done enough, and it is enough to trust in Him. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not about how much I do. It's not as though I, I get there one day and go, I just hope I've done enough because I can't. I can't do enough. If I just started doing from here on out really good things, it's not going to just erase all the sins of my past. I don't have a sin eraser. I can't do it. 
So it doesn't matter how much you try to do. What matters is do you trust the one who has done enough? Do you trust Jesus Christ? If you look to him and turn from your sin and trust it in him alone for salvation. What happens when we die? We face judgment. And on that day, we better be standing in Christ. The second question that we need to ask is this, is what is hell really like? What is hell really like? Is it, is it really like what the parable says? Is it really this? Or is Jesus kind of exaggerating? Is he, he really kind of puffing it up and building it up to really drive home a point? Is he exaggerating here? Well, no. Hell's exactly as the parable describes. And worse, perhaps. John 5.29 describes, describes it as a place of condemnation. In Matthew 8.12 it's a place of darkness. In Mark 9.44, it's a place of unquenchable fire and the undying worms. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, we, we saw there, it's a place where you're excluded from the blessing of fellowship with God, from His goodness. In our passage we read today, Jesus is driving home the point that it is a place of suffering. It's a place of suffering. Who's going to be in hell? Have you thought about that? Who's going to be in hell? Scripture, scripture reveals in Matthew 25, 41 and Revelation 20, 10 that Satan and the demons are going to be there and they're not there as agents of punishment. There is those being punished. It's not as though hell is a place where Satan has dominion and Satan is there punishing those in there. Satan is cast there. He's sent there. It is prepared for him. Matthew 25 verse 41 states that there we we read watch um i'm in the wrong chapter there sorry uh, yeah then christ will say god will say to those on his left depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels and those who would be cast there depart from me you cursed into that eternal fire it's not only the devil and his angels it's prepared for them but who is it it's the unbelievers it's those who are not in Christ. So the, those who will be in hell are Satan and demons and those who have rebelled against God and have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, those who are unbelievers. That passage there in Matthew 25, we'll get to it down the road as we work through Matthew, but that passage is, is a staggering passage. We just want you to hear this when we think about what is hell like. It says, when the, starting in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. This is Jesus talking. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from the other, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. And the King will say to those on His right, Come! You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the, that's the good news, believer. That's what we're going to look at from the weeks following this. The, the kingdom that is inherited by those who trust Christ that was prepared for us before the foundation of the world. He goes on to illustrate that, talk about it more, but skipping down to verse 41, he then says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. 
the parable described this great chasm between heaven and hell. We talked about how that's just the the reality that you cannot leave hell once you're there. Another way we understand that and why we know that's true is we ask that question, is there a way out of hell? No, it's eternal. Revelation 20.10 talks about it being eternal. There in Matthew 25.41 and Mark 9.43 is a place of eternal fire. In Matthew 25.46, eternal punishment. In 2 Thessalonians 1.8.9, a place of everlasting destruction. Is it a place where we are ever burning but never burnt, ever destroying but never destroyed? But what's the greatest agony of hell? What's the worst part of it, do you think? It's being punished by the fury of God's holy wrath. The Scripture talks about us being objects of wrath in Romans, that we are outside of Christ. If you're not saved by Him, you're daily storing up wrath. Ephesians 2 talks about us being children of wrath outside of Christ. We, we read in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, it's interesting, right? 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says that we're cast away from the presence of God. But the best way to understand that, how do we reconcile, how do we, how do we understand that? The best way to see that and understand that is we know that God is omnipresent. It's not as though God just kind of ceases to exist and is like, oh, I, don't, I exist everywhere except for there. I can't get there. I can't see that. That's not, that's not right. What it is is that we're excluded from the blessing of God's good presence, of fellowship with Him. But we're not excluded from God's punishment. We can't get away from it. One scholar wrote this, In hell, God is completely absent in terms of His presence to bless, but is only present to impart suffering and pain to the sinners. Those in hell will reside in hell for all eternity as objects of God's wrath. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Everlasting destruction. Ever being destroyed. But never destroyed. Ever burning. Never burnt. Ever being consumed by worms. Never consumed. Ever in agony with no relief ever in torment. If this is the case, then why would we not think seriously about it? Why would there be some of you in here today who you just shrug your shoulders at it? You just kind of go your way. You're just ready for me to stop talking. Why? Oh, it's interesting. Jonathan Edwards answered this question in three ways. There's three reasons why people don't think seriously about it. So the first one is that you don't understand the manner of the punishment. God's wrath, the idea that, that a holy God would pour forth holy wrath 
is all but foreign. Have you stopped to consider what that would be like? That the God who spoke and all things came into existence would pour out wrath, His holy wrath upon you eternally? Have you considered that? The second thing he ever says is that they don't understand the greatness of the punishment. They don't understand the greatness of the punishment. He says this, he says they, they hear that it will be intolerable, exceedingly dreadful, that it will fill their souls with misery, that it will be like fire and brimstone and the like, but they nevertheless seldom think what is meant by these expressions. What does it mean What does it mean to be eternally destroyed? What does it mean to be in eternal fire? Do you think about that? Have you considered that? The third thing Edward says is, he says, you don't understand the eternity of the punishment so they, they know but little what it will be to bear misery forever without change and without end. They don't imagine how it will be when they come to be in hell to think with themselves, here I must be forever and ever. There's no escape. There's no help. There's no comfort. Everyone in this room has been through hard times. Some of you in this room, the hard time qualifies as a really bad spanking. That's where you're at age-wise. Others in here have experienced the pain of broken bones, the aches of arthritis, the intense burning of touching something. I remember when a generator fell on, over on my leg and the, the muffler landed on my calf. The pain of that burning. All I want to do is to end. Edward says, people don't consider the eternal nature of that. That it's going to continue and continue and continue and continue. Please think seriously about it. Third question we need to ask of this is, what more do you need to turn to Jesus for salvation? What more do you need? In, in verse 30, 16, Matthew, or Luke 16, 30, the issue is Repentance. And the reality is, is that God sends no one to hell who is not deserving of hell because all have sinned and all have been called to repent and to trust in Christ. We all deserve hell. But the good news is the, the appeal of the gospel is to repent, to turn. And just like in the parable, we need nothing more than what we already have in order to know how to be saved, how to repent and trust in Christ. So Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.15 that he told Timothy, he said, you're well acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation. Everyone in here has access to the Word of God. Everyone in here may, may, everyone may, may have, or how am I saying this? Everyone in here could possibly have, that's how we say it, a copy of God's Word in their home, even if you're not a believer. It's there. You may have a Bible of your own, even though you're not a believer. You have access to it. J.C. Ryle wrote this. He said, It's not more evidence that is wanted in order to make men repent, but more heart and will to make use of what we already know. The dead could tell us nothing more than the Bible contains if they rose from their graves to instruct us. 
You have people saying, I just want to come back and say, this is what it was like. This is what I saw. This is what I experienced. If they would just tell me. You've already been told. If you don't listen to this, are you going to listen to that? Don't be the one who delays. Don't be the one who just says, oh, I've got all the time in the world. Don't be the one who keeps putting it off and assumes that I've got tomorrow. I'll repent later. I'll follow God later. James knew the error of this. James wrote in James 4, 13 and 16, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet, James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we would live and do this or that. As it is, your boast is in arrogance. We don't know what tomorrow holds. That's the reality. We all face a 100% death rate. We will all die. We will all stand before God. Hear, hear these words. Pastor William Grinnell, he says, Satan labors to put off the sinner with delays. Floating and flitting thoughts of repenting, he fears not. He can give sinners leave to talk what they will do so he can beg time and by his art keep such thoughts from coming to a head and ripening into a perfect resolution. Fear in hell but thought of repenting. He's just simply saying, you know, Scripture warns us against the schemes of Satan. The schemes of Satan is just delay. It's all right, you've got tomorrow. Just wait. No big deal. You've got tomorrow. You've got tomorrow. You've got tomorrow. And what Grinnell is saying is there is no one in hell, few, he says, few in hell who didn't consider repenting. There is no mistaking the horror and the woe of hell. We cannot understate its severity and we must not ignore its reality. But I just want to leave you with the good news that God didn't either. God did not ignore the severity of hell. He told us. He does not live and allow us to live in ignorance of His reality. He's told us. Believers, the reality of hell, the reality of hell should lead us to respond in three ways. One, we should praise God for His mercy shown in saving us. We should stand in just a moment. We're going to stand and we're going to proclaim and we're going to rejoice that all we have is Christ. There's nothing that we bring to it. All we have is Christ. He is our hope. He's our confidence. He's our righteousness. We rest in Him. This should lead us to worship Him, to praise Him. Second, it should lead us to, to be zealous in prayer for the lost, that, that we would be burdened for them, that we would pray for their souls, that, that we would run to them to tell them the good news. Thirdly, that we would have a commitment to evangelism and missions as God leads and provides the opportunity. That it would move us, that there would be a weight, not a weight as a burden, but just a weightiness to the reality and the state of lost souls around us, that we would go to them and proclaim the good news that salvation is in Jesus Christ, that every way leads to hell except for Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, the life.
we should have that burden. We should proclaim from the housetops that knowing the plight of man, God made a way for salvation. The unbelievers. Those of you who are here and you're not Christians, maybe you're just questioning, maybe you're, a, you're just an honest skeptic, you just don't know, you're uncertain, you're waiting for something. Maybe you're adamantly opposed. Maybe you stand in, in, in firm contradiction. I would just bring you back to Hebrews 9.27 and remind you the reality of what God's revealed Word says that just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. But I don't want to leave you there. I want you to hear verse 28. Verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. God's Word is clear that judgment comes. But God's Word is equally clear that salvation has come through Jesus Christ. So Christ offered Himself once to bear the sins of many. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has done what we cannot do. And that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The good news is that Christ has done what we could not do. And that anyone who confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Don't live ignorant of the reality of hell. And don't delay in repenting of your sins and trusting Christ as Lord. Let's pray. Father, we bow and we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for revealing to us, making known to us what awaits. God, you have left nothing hidden about what happens when we die. We know that when we die, we enter into eternity, either eternal destruction or eternity in heaven, eternal life. And God, we thank you that you have made a way, that God, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to do what we could not do, to pay the debt we could not pay, to rise victoriously from the grave, that we might be saved. And so God, those of us in here that are believers, God, we are going to stand and, and we rejoice that we have Christ, that he has saved us, when we were rebels, when we were running headlong in our sin, that you woken our dead spirits, you brought life to our dead hearts, you saved us, God, that we place faith, our faith in you. We rejoice in that, that you saved us by faith alone, in Christ alone. And God, I pray for friends here, God, who are unbelievers, who or unbelievers for a variety of reasons. Maybe they're just skeptical. Maybe they have questions. Maybe they've been burnt. They've been hurt. 
I don't know. Lord, I pray that you would waken them to the severity and the reality of hell and of the beauty and the amazing truth of your grace that eternal life is available through Jesus Christ and faith in him. So would you do a great work in their life, we pray. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.